you are a fan of a DC sports team, you know the meaning of unfulfilled expectations. <laughs> I'm only saying that because I have a team that's actually doing really good right now, so I can, I can be that way. But sports fans, we know that. A new season comes, your team's made some trades, maybe changed coaching, maybe got a sense of excitement that, that things are going to be just right. Sports talk radio is a buzz. This is the year, and then maybe it doesn't always work out quite as we hope. Things don't always go as planned, and not all of us get our expectations fulfilled. If we could put ourselves back into the Jewish world of the day of Jesus Christ, we are in John chapter 12. If we could put ourselves in that setting, we would have a sense for remarkably high expectations, for what it is to, to think that this is going to be something big. Think about it. The passage we're going to look at this morning is what we would typically refer to as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. But if you think about the, the history leading up to that, for 400 years, God has been silent in terms of sending revelation through the prophets. The Old Testament closes, and God has not spoken through the prophets. Ten generations have passed, each of them anticipating eagerly looking forward to what they believe God has promised, and that is some kind of deliverance, some rescue from underneath the thumb of brutal governments that are ruling over the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people had known all sorts of war and pain and persecution under evil and pagan rulers. We could go back to men like the Greek ruler Antiochus IV, Antiochus nicknamed himself Epiphanius, the appearing of God, to tell you just a little bit about his ego. Antiochus was called by people the madman, to tell you a little bit more what the people thought of him. He was a brutal leader. Less than two centuries before Jesus Christ, Antiochus was pursuing total Greek dominion of the world around him. The Jews were standing in the way, and so he sent Greek troops into Jerusalem, slaughtered thousands of Jews, set up a statue to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem, and forbid the Jews from studying the Torah, the Old Testament law. Eventually, we know, historically, there was a successful revolt, and Antiochus and the Greek rule was overthrown. The Jews want a reprieve only to be conquered again less than a century later by the Roman Empire, by Pompey who then in 40 B.C. installed a leader over the Jews by the name of Herod the Great, who allowed the Jews some room in terms of worship in Jerusalem, but was also a ruthless tyrant, was one who would kill anyone that got close to him and seemed to be a threat, even his own family members. That's why we see when Jesus is born and the, the death sentence is sent out to all the baby boys in Bethlehem, that is Herod the Great acting out of ego to protect his crown to not let anyone get close to his position of rule. Herod taxed people terribly to fund a lavish lifestyle, to pay for architecture that was essentially monuments to, to his name. John chapter 12, though, if we could put ourselves there, it's early in the first century, we would know firsthand that sense of high expectations that for a people who have been under oppression and rule, there is, it seems, coming forth one who is the hope. They are pinning all of their hopes for the future on the shoulders of this rabbi from Galilee named Jesus. He had been preceded 
in terms of announcement by a prophet named John. God, it appears, had begun to speak and, and, and say, behold, look at this one who is coming. He's preached for about three years from Jerusalem and Judea in the south up through Samaria on into Galilee. And he has preached in a way that they have not been used to in their lifetimes. He has preached with power and authority. When they hear him, it is as if they are hearing the very words of God, and they have been moved by him. They are beginning to to think about who this man is who preaches in this way. And not only that, in fact, more than that, he does signs. He feeds the hungry. He feeds thousands, in fact. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. And now, most recently, he has even raised the dead from out of a tomb. His fame has grown so much that the Jewish religious leaders are livid and nervous, and they want him stopped. Because the sense is that if this Jesus continues to ascend in as being the crowd favorite that he is and do the things that he's doing, they know what's going to happen, what happened before. Rome will send in its armies and will crush this effort to challenge Rome. If he puts himself forward as king in any way, they feel like this will all be lost and all of the prestige and power they have will be lost. And so when we get to midway through John chapter 12, where we are this morning, there are two very opposite streams of people at this point. There are those, the Jewish religious leaders, who want Jesus Christ arrested and execute it ASAP. We want him stopped. We want this over. None of this king talk. And then there are common Jews who have been under the Roman Empire and who believe that perhaps this is the one. Maybe this is the one who will be their king. And the crowds desperately desire that Jesus would free them from Roman tyranny. So last time we read The beginning of chapter 12, Jesus being anointed by Mary, and then we finished with verses 9 through 11 where those those two streams in opposite directions are clear. Crowds are following Jesus because of the raising of Lazarus, and they are wanting to, to see him and hear him and perhaps make him king. And then there are the Jewish leaders who want to destroy him. So picking up in verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this is John's description, again, of what we would commonly refer to as Palm Sunday. Your Bible might say the triumphal entry, the entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. It is really, as we will see in this text, anything but, at least in the terms that they are imagining that he is coming in triumph. For the people, there is this air of excitement. After all of the centuries of oppression, here now is this one, this miracle worker from Nazareth who has done things that only God is able to do, and they now feel like this one could be the anointed one. This could be the one to set them free from Rome. And so they receive him into Jerusalem. His appearance to them is it it, it must mean that he is prepared to be king. And so they are embracing him as if he is. You and I have the benefit of hindsight. We've already seen the things that Jesus has been saying and teaching, and Jesus has already made it abundantly clear that he is not coming to Jerusalem to conquer the Romans. He is coming to Jerusalem to die. He has already told his disciples about this. We saw it earlier in John chapter 12 when Mary anoints his feet 
that in fact Jesus says, this is as if she is doing a ceremonial embalming of my body for burial. He is anticipating his death imminently. Anything but military celebration or political victory at this point. Jesus Christ knew that he would soon suffer and die, not in battle, but for the sins of his people. For these Jewish bystanders, though, this this fact that Jesus, who's been out in other regions, suddenly now is back in Jerusalem, they know the setting, they know the context, they know their own religious leaders have questioned him and, and don't want him, and yet they do, and so there's some sense of if he's coming back, he knows what he's coming back to, so this, this must be it. So this is like the starter's gun at the beginning of the track meet, the appearance of Jesus. That, that This must be launching something, that he's coming to claim his throne. Everything is not as it seems. There is widespread misunderstanding in their zeal, and what we're going to see in this passage is God's ways are not man's ways. Man's ways are subservient to God's ways. It doesn't work the other way around, where man says, okay, God, now is the time. Now we've decided this is the one, so we're going to make him the Messiah. It is our job to learn God's will and to be obedient to him, not not for God to come and, and obey what we decide he should do. And John 12 is a powerful reminder of the truth that God is sovereign and God's ways are right. It is a wonderful illustration of what Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than yours. God making it abundantly clear That man is not the controller and manipulator of history. God is the sovereign over history. God is the ruler who rules through his good providence. And so here in John chapter 12, we're going to see sort of a series of misguided expectations that people had for Jesus that are sort of rooted in this idea that God is here to do for us. God is here to to satisfy us and to serve us. God must, must be ready to come through and give us what we want. Jesus will rebuff each of those. He will dismantle all of these expectations one by one with truth, and he will teach again by precept and by example that it is man's call to follow him in faith, to walk in obedience to him, not God's call to obey us when we say the time is now. And so in verse 13, they're waving palm branches. They are calling Jesus king. Hosanna is a cry for salvation. Lord, save us. And it is equally a statement of praise. You are saying, Hosanna, to the one you believe is great enough, strong enough to deliver you. And so there is a kingly sense here. The Jews are used to celebrations outside the temple where they would wave palm branches and they would sing the words of Psalm 1825. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. They are showing their belief that this, this one must be a king in the line of David. The great king who stood in history for the Jews as the one who elevated the people and saved them from the Philistines and all the other surrounding armies. This one will be the king who will rescue us from oppression, delivering us from our enemies. It is very much this moment of this entry like the prelude to a coronation. And then Jesus goes about destroying all of their expectations. Look at what it says in verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it 
Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The expectations. This is the one. He is coming for us. They are, they are ready. And Jesus almost immediately begins to shatter their vision of the conquering king. Because the conquering king is going to ride in on the, the strong horse, or he'll be leading an army behind him like a military general. That would be the imagery of someone who's coming in to rule, to take on Rome. And instead, Jesus sits on a donkey and by himself rides into the city. We look at that and we look at Zechariah's prophecy and we go, well, that, that, that just, that's a wonderful fulfillment of prophecy. Shouldn't they have seen that? And, and clearly, as John says, we didn't understand it at the time. It didn't make any sense to us. And in fact, it didn't make sense to the crowd. Here comes our new king, and he's riding on the simplest of animals that has no connection whatsoever to a conquering force. The donkey, if he had anything to do with the conquering force, was bringing up the rear and carrying supplies and being led by the servants. Not the king riding the donkey. They wanted victory over man. Jesus had come to bring them peace with God. That's the, that's the element of this that will throw them completely, that they are in need of peace with God. And this is just the beginning of the destruction of their expectations. John quotes Zechariah in verse 15 when he quotes Zechariah 9.9. And Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, look, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's interesting, though, is when John quotes that here, as he's writing this later now with the benefit of hindsight and the leading of the Holy Spirit, he now changes the, the main verb in Zechariah 9.9 from rejoice, shout aloud, to don't be afraid. Fear not, daughter of Zion. That, that prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, had been given about 500 years before the time of Jesus Christ. At another point in history when, when Israel is saying, where is God? What is God going to do? And, and God reveals, I will send one to you. I will send a Savior to you. And he will come in riding on a donkey. And he will, he will be your salvation. And yet John, as he quotes this now, instead of saying rejoice and shout, uses this phrase we see often in Scripture when people are about to be scared. Fear not. Fear not. That's what Jesus says in Luke 12 when he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Why? Why here, why now, does John quote this, not as shout and rejoice, but as don't be afraid? We're not certain but we know that John writes this many years after the fact, and in hindsight, John understands that what the crowd anticipates at that moment, what they are on the verge of, is not anything like what they expect. This is not going to go according to plan, and what in fact they are headed for is not some great 
military conquest, some great political victory, the Messiah is actually about to die. The Messiah is going to be put to death. One commentator puts it this way, although the crowd did not understand the implications of their cry for salvation, John knew that the road to salvation would be a traumatic experience. The king that they were beginning to cheer, to prepare, to to coronate as king, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, who is strong and mighty and able to do the works of God, is not going to fulfill their demands for conquest. Instead, Jesus will come and bring, uh, be a suffering servant who will bring them something they had no idea they even needed or didn't at least believe they needed, and that was peace with God. The, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, if you had talked about peace with God, would say, of course we have peace with God. We are Abraham's offspring. We are in the line of Abraham. We are his descendants. We, of all people on earth, are right with God because of who we are, because of who we've descended from. And yet it is that they need to be made right with God, and that is what Jesus has brought. They are not expecting that. So verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Pause there. Don't know a lot about these folks. This is not the terminology for Greek-speaking Jews. This is more of the idea that these are probably Gentiles. These are probably non-Jews who have come to believe in the God of Israel, who who worship the God of Israel and who have come for the feast and, and have also, as so many others have, have heard about Jesus. And they want to see him. They're curious. And so they go to the disciples. Can we can we meet Jesus? And so they seek him out. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Don't know if Jesus said this to those Gentiles, if this was just his answer to the disciples. John's not giving us all of the the scenery details at this moment, but we know that this interesting moment, when now Gentiles even, in the midst of all of this press to make Jesus king, now you've got Gentiles even coming and saying, oh, we want to meet Jesus. And it is in the midst of that that Jesus says in verse 23 something that is monumental. This is the the pivot point in the Gospel of John. If you want to sort of mark this as the sort of turning point in the Gospel of John, this is it. When Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If if you've been going through the Gospel of John with us, you know that this this idea of a coming hour has been a recurring theme since chapter 2. Jesus speaking of, my hour has not yet come. There is an hour coming. John uses that language in John chapter 7 when he talks about the the religious leaders being unable to arrest Jesus. They they want to stop Jesus, and, and basically, as he describes it, they were unable to because, as he says in John 7, 23, his hour had not yet come. Here's Jesus now in chapter 12 saying, my hour has come. The hour has come. 
for the Son to be glorified. This is, this is sort of the, the starter's gun, if you will. This is the moment that we have been anticipating throughout the Gospel of John that has finally arrived. Now he says that the hour has come for him to be glorified. We think of glorified, we think of cheered, honored, exalted, lifted up. Somebody's glorified, it's, it's raising them up in some way. All of the things that we would anticipate going with that. And so it's possible to look at this and say from a, from a superficial point of view, if you're the disciples in this moment and now Gentiles have come and the Jews have already been waving the palms and saying, Hosanna, King of Israel, now the Gentiles are coming. If he says the Son of Man is to be glorified, it's, it's tempting in this moment to think, right, yes, here it comes. And then what does he start to talk about? His death. He goes on and says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I say, unless a grain of wheat falls in the other and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bear much, bears much fruit. Whoever loses, loves his life loses it, hates his life in the world, keep it. All of a sudden, he's moved from, yes, glorification to death. And this is so confounding at this point. But it's pointing to the simple fact that for Jesus, glorification... Being honored would come from doing the will of his Father. Obedience is the thing that brings glory. It is obedience to the will of the Father, which in this case means the cross, that Jesus, the Son of Man, will be glorified. It is, that's why he talks then about death, because it is in that that he is glorified. It's not simply we think of glorification, we might jump ahead to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Carson describes this well. He says, it's not, just the shame of the, it's not just that the shame of the cross is inevitably followed by the exaltation, but that the glory is already fully displayed in the shame. You see, he, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is in his death and resurrection. It is in the suffering for sinners that God is being glorified, that the Son of Man is obeying the will of his Father that he is doing what he has been sent to do. To be glorified is to be raised up and cheered. And Jesus says, I am about to be glorified, and then immediately foretells his death. Because his death is the path to his glorification. His death is the submission of the Son to the will of the Father to accomplish the redemption of his people, to save us from our sins. Jesus had to die in order to rescue a people. That's why he describes it. It's like, a, it's like a seed that goes into the ground. Unless that seed goes into the ground and is buried, it, it's nothing. It's just a seed, but it is when it dies that it then gives yield to new life. It is in that death that there is this raising and this harvest of those who belong to him. Jesus would be exalted as king of kings, but not because of his political skill or his military might, but because he fulfilled the will of his Father and gave himself as the Lamb of God. And so he says, now that hour has come. And then verse 27, very aware of this hour that has come, he says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. 
again, John's not giving us exact times and settings. Are the Gentiles here? Is this another day of the week? Are we still on Sunday or is this later? Presumably this could be later in the week. Um, but what we do see again is there's crowds again. They are there to see Jesus. They are there to see Jesus, presumably become king. Jesus, all the while, is fully aware of what he is there to do. And so he says in verse 27, my soul is troubled. My soul is stirred up. I am afflicted. He is, he is feeling the weight of what is about to take place. And for Jesus, there is no escape from this hour. There is no other way out at this point. While the crowds wanted Jesus to ascend to the throne, Jesus knows that what is imminent for him is betrayal. It is rejection. It is the same crowd that on Sunday is shouting, Hosanna, King of Israel, save us, and who then on Friday are saying, crucify him. Because he's no longer fulfilled their expectations. Jesus is imminently aware that betrayal and rejection and the pain, the physical suffering of the cross, and then the awful weight of bearing our sins on himself and experiencing the judgment of his Father. He is knowing that that's what is imminent, and his soul is understandably troubled. He even offers the question we might ask, which is, there, is there any other way? Is it possible for, for this hour to, to pass by? And of course not. He knows the answer to that question. I think it's a good example for us, perhaps, when we see Jesus say, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I come to this hour. I think it's just another good example for us that, that as frail human beings, it's okay when we ask questions, but we need to trust. He asked it, but he ultimately trusted in faith that, no, I know that God is sovereign in this, and I'm going to rest in that. It's one thing to ask. It's Another thing, though, to still believe that regardless if the answer comes and it's not what we were really hoping for at that moment, we still have faith to know that God is in control. And so he, he knows that this suffering is for a purpose. And he cries out in prayer, Father, glorify your name. That is the, the attitude that we will see in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? On the eve of his crucifixion, when Jesus now is betrayal is imminent, crucifixion is imminent, and we see him agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, Father, if there's any way for this cup to be removed, yet not my will, but yours be done. And here he is sort of giving us a prelude prayer to that. Father, no, I, I want your purpose done. Ultimately, Lord, glorify your name through me. Can I suggest to you that, that if you take anything from out of this passage, I think this is a model in prayer for you and I. When we go through suffering, when some affliction comes, when we go through loss, whatever it might be, and it is painful and it is hard, that we be urged to respond like Jesus and say, Father, glorify your name. Even in what I am going through, Cause it to be so that people who see my suffering would somehow see you. Cause them to see a great God who sustains me through this, who exalts himself through this. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is our model for how to pray in the midst of pain and suffering. Father, even when what happens to me is painful, cause people to see that your name is great. Jesus prays, a voice is heard 
Crowd doesn't even seem to fully grasp what it is they heard. Some say sounded like thunder. Say others say no, it's it's something supernatural. Maybe it was an angel that was speaking. They don't entirely understand. So we know from John explaining it to us, it was actually the voice of God. It is God the Father giving his loving assurance and answer to Jesus' prayer. Father, glorify your name. And what is the Father's response? Son, by virtue of how you have lived your life in obedience to me, I have already seen my name glorified through your obedience, and I will continue to see my name glorified in your obedience to the cross and to the point of death. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. As the Father had been exalted through the obedience of the Son in life, so his name would be exalted through the obedience of the Son in death. I have glorified it and will again. Verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Think again. You're in the crowd. Predominant expectation of the crowd at this point is Jesus is going to defeat a ruler. Jesus is going to win. He is powerful and strong, and so Jesus is going to at minimum, take out Herod the Great, if not the Roman Empire itself, and go after the emperor. Jesus will ultimately be victorious here, and he will defeat the enemy. Their expectations are completely nationalistic in nature. And here again, Jesus says completely what they don't expect. The hour of his glorification through his suffering and death and resurrection would establish a kingdom but not at all like the kind they were seeking. They were looking for a temporary national one, one that would would make greatness in Israel, that would make the Jewish people be exalted. And, And what Jesus is beginning to say here is that he is going to defeat the world and establish a kingdom, but it will be an eternal kingdom for followers of every type, Jew and Gentile alike, that that signal of what just happened when those Gentiles came and said, we want to see this, Jesus. Jesus Christ is bringing a judgment that brings a hope that saves. He is bringing a judgment against the world, and he is casting out the ruler of the world. All throughout this, all throughout his earthly ministry, the crowds that have been following Jesus, the Jewish crowds, have been judging Jesus. At least that's what they thought they were doing. They've been watching and listening to Jesus and watching the signs for the purpose of rendering their judgment on whether or not he was approved as their Messiah. That's really been the prevailing attitude that leads up to this this sort of Palm Sunday celebration, which is, all right, you raised Lazarus, so you've passed the test. You must be the one, and we are ready to now embrace you as Messiah. They have gone now through these couple of years of skepticism and doubt and hesitation at his teaching, all to come to this place of saying, all right. Carson puts it this way. The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus, not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but climactically in the cross. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. This wasn't the crowd judging Jesus, as they thought, and deciding whether or not he could be approved as king, that, that they, we've met, we voted, we'll make you king. In the hour of his glorification, Jesus Christ would establish the dividing line for the judgment of the world forevermore. 
In his death and resurrection, Jesus established the turning point in all of history that divides all of humanity. Either believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came and lived a perfect life and gave himself on the cross for your sins, believe that he died in your place and turn from your sins and trust in him, or you stand on the other side of judgment, condemned for eternity by God and separated from him. And so when he says, I have come to judge the world, it is not, I've come to, to make it all right for Israel and judge all of those nations that have been unkind. He is coming to be the judge over all of history. In addition, there'd be a sense in which the ruler of this world, and, and Jesus uses this terminology elsewhere in John's gospel. He's talking about Satan. There's a sense in which when Jesus Christ is hung on the cross, that some might say, Jesus didn't do very good. If this is how he ends up, dying a shameful death at the hands of the Roman Empire, the most shameful of deaths, then I guess Satan won because he has been defeated. And and this just doesn't look good at all. And yet what Jesus says here when he says, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out? What he's saying in verse 31 is now, watch for the fulfillment of what you heard all the way back from God in Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered the world and God cast his judgment on the world, and in the course of that said to Satan in the garden, Genesis 3.15, the offspring, about concerning the offspring of the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise in Genesis 3 was, Satan, there is coming one in this line, an offspring in this line, who will be a redeemer. And you will have a painful strike at his heel, and he will crush your head. He will be victorious. And Jesus now is saying, that moment that you've been waiting for since the beginning of creation and the coming of the offspring of the woman has now arrived. And the ruler of this world will be cast out. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes the glaring demonstration of the fact that Satan has no power over Jesus, that Jesus is king of kings. Satan still exists, he still tempts, he still perpetrates evil in the world, but but his defeat is sure. That's what we were singing about in Luther's great words, lo, his doom is sure. That's why Luther wrote that. It's, It's out of this promise that the ruler of this world is cast out because Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, crushed the power of sin and death when he died on the cross and bore the wrath of God as a sacrificial lamb. He took that and broke that power when he rose from the grave, triumphant. And so when Jesus Christ is raised and the power of his life and death and resurrection is applied to the lives of believers, it says then Jesus will draw all people to himself. That all, in verse 32, is not meaning to imply every single person of all time ultimately becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, because that's contrary to what we see elsewhere in Scripture, that there is a judgment, and there are those who are opposed to him who go off into an eternity in hell. The point of that all is really triggered by what's just happened with the Greeks coming. It is Jesus' way of saying that he's not come 
to be some sort of isolated ruler for one ethnic group of people. He has come to save all people. He has come so that we will one day be at the throne of Jesus and people from every tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered because he is a savior who saves all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life. He is a great savior. Jesus Christ was not here for a nationalistic rescue of Israel, but for an eternal salvation of all who would turn to him by faith. Verse 33. He just got done saying he'd be lifted up. Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Let me just stop there. What we've seen in John 12 is just this unfolding series of confounding dilemmas for those who were counting on Jesus to do one thing, deliver us. Come and rescue us from Rome make the Jewish people exalted like we believe they should be. So we've seen one after another here of them expecting anticipating, and Jesus riding the donkey, and, and, and Jesus speaking of being buried in the ground and, and shooting down their expectations. And now there's one more. They, they say, we've been taught that when the Messiah comes, he never goes away. With good reason, they believe that. They had come to believe, based on the Old Testament teaching, that when the Christ, the Messiah, comes, he will ascend to the throne of David, and there's no more giving up that throne, that he will be on that throne forever once he sat down on it. Well expected by virtue of the Old Testament prophets. They had said that again and again. When God established his kingdom, one who would sit on the throne, there would be no stopping of that kingdom. Daniel speaks of it in Daniel 2.44, of the God of heaven establishing a kingdom that would never be destroyed and would stand forever. Isaiah 9.7, it's on our Christmas card sometimes, right? The prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, right? And on the throne of David and over his kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 89, verse 36, promises an offspring from the line of David, which Jesus was, an heir to the line of David. That shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, it shall be established forever. Handel captures this, right? In the, the hallelujah chorus in the Messiah, right? And he shall what? Rule forever and ever, right? That's just that's simply capturing what the Old Testament writers were, were foretold through them by God. The one who sits on the throne of David will rule forever and ever. And so the angel comes to Mary in Luke 1 and says, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And yet here stands this seeming heir to the throne, has done everything they would imagine he could do. And he's prepared, it seems, to take the throne. He's raised the dead, and yet he's foretelling his own imminent death. If I be lifted up, and by this he meant his death, and the crowd is just stunned. As we'll see next week when we get down to verse 37, the, the response to all that we've just looked at here this morning is widespread unbelief. What turns from following and crowds saying, this guy who raised Lazarus, there's something to this guy, this is the one, and then all of a sudden all of this, this series of teaching and all of these expectations that are shattered ends with the crowd going, oh, wait a minute. Now you're talking about dying. You're supposed to be eternal. 
You're going to get on the throne and we never lose again. It's just, it's just your king. So verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is talking to a group of people who believe themselves to be the most religiously enlightened people of all. Mocked the Romans, the Greek-speaking world, because of its, its idolatry, its worship of false gods. We're, we're, we're the people of the God of Israel. And they have been convinced of what they're to be looking for, and they've weighed Jesus and found him to be the, the one that they think that they are anticipating. And so they see this, and, and here is Jesus just systematically tearing down their expectations and flipping them around. Now, Jesus, in their minds, has the arrogance of saying, you know what? You are in darkness. And if you do not turn to me, not coronate me so that I can make your life good, if you don't bow yourself before me and turn to me, you will be overwhelmed by darkness. You will be lost in darkness for all of eternity. Can you imagine how that resonated with the crowd that was there in Jerusalem to do their religious duty and carry out the religious feast and do the sacrifices and go through all the motions, and now here is this rabbi from Nazareth saying, listen, this isn't about winning some military victory. Your only hope is believing fully in me. Your only hope is to trust your soul eternity, eternally with me, to believe that I have come to rescue you from sin and to give you peace with God. Because if you continue as you are, you will remain lost and blind and in darkness. And therefore, Jesus says, run to the light because the light's not going to be here forever. This is not an offer that stands for all time. You don't know when your time is going to end. You don't know when the last time is that you will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can despise Christ and reject Christ and, and assume that there'll be time later to deal with Christ. And Christ is here saying to this crowd, you don't know what tomorrow brings. And the light is only here for a time. Run to the light now. Here's a crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem, believing they are formally inviting him to be their savior. They, they believe that they have just convened the political convention. We've watched him. We've sort of interviewed him with our questions. We've listened to his promises. We've, we've sort of weighed him, and we've decided that, yes, you can come and rescue us and be our king. We'd actually kind of like that. We'll make you king. And Jesus throws all of that out and says, I will be king but not only over one ethnic people because you say so, I will be king because I am the light of the world who has come to save all who will turn to me in faith and turn from their sins and believe. I am here to rescue sinners and give them peace with God. That's why we skipped over it a little bit back in verses 25 and 26 when he gives this warning about following me. Whoever loves his life loses it, hates it, keeps it, you serve me, you must follow me. It's just, that's, that's why all of this adds to the confounding nature of all that they're hearing. Whoever loves his life loses it. What are we talking about, Jesus? 
We've got a mission for you to do here. Just come in powerfully, do those kind of things you do with Lazarus and all, and make it good, and fix it all, and save us. And Jesus says, he is God in flesh. This is the Lord who has come to rescue us, and our enemy is sin. Our enemy is death. Our enemy is, is the, the prince of darkness who tempts us and lures us into sin and, and, and is the one who wants to see us bound in sin and death. And he says, if you will not follow me, you will have no hope. You can't earn the Father's approval on your own merits. You can't go to him with your birth certificate and say that you are a child of Abraham because apart from Jesus, you will be lost in darkness. And your only hope is to believe in him and receive a salvation that is a work of his grace. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, then that is, that is his urging to us. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will be my servant also. We have come this morning, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, because we, we celebrate this king who gave himself as a lamb and suffered in our place and who rose again and who is indeed coming. He is on the throne and he has taken that throne of David, and it is his kingdom forever. And you and I who are trusting in Jesus Christ have eternity to worship and to rejoice in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a joy it is for us to follow him to say, Lord, glorify your name through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving your Son our Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus. For in the midst of this great might, the display of you being Lord of life, this was not for some sort of isolated, momentary, temporal gain in a nation, but rather that you came in obedience to the will of your Father, that you might give the sacrifice of your own perfect life, and bear the wrath of God for sinners, and having endured and taken on the shame of the cross, dying and then rising again to new life to declare victory over sin and death. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today be the day that you would draw them to yourself to see the beauty of the Savior, to see his work, to turn from sin and to embrace him. And Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, Enable us by your Spirit's work in us to be praying even throughout this week. There may be moments coming this week that we don't anticipate right now that may be difficult. Loss, sadness, things that happen that we, we're not thinking could possibly happen. And yet, Lord, we pray that in the midst of whatever comes our way, might we be a people who say, Father, glorify your name through us. Cause us by your Spirit's enabling to live in such a way that people would see the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, in our lives and would see the hope that we have in him. It's in our Savior's name that we pray these things. Amen.